Hello and welcome to The Hive Podcast, the series that inquires into our relationship with one another, with technology and with the living world. Join me, Natalie Nahai, and some wonderful guests as we explore the pressing question of how we can support one another to envision and create a more flourishing, integrative future for all. For more information on today's episode and guest, please visit natalienahai.com forward slash The Hive Podcast. And for additional books and resources, check out natalienahai.com forward slash resources. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. In today's episode, I speak with Kane Blythe, CEO of Credit Nature and Managing Director of Ecosulis, an organisation that specialises in habitat restoration, particularly through the adoption of natural regeneration techniques, rewilding and the use of technology in conservation. Qualified as a chartered environmentalist and a full member of the Chartered Institute of Environmental Management and Assessment and the Institute of Ecology and Environmental Management, Kane has over 20 years of experience specialising in nature recovery and habitat restoration. In 2020, he published the brilliant book Rewilding, the Radical New Science of Ecological Recovery, which he wrote in partnership with Paul Jepson, one of the UK's leading conservationists. Kane's work not only focuses on the natural world, central to his approach is the endeavour to deliver solutions that ensure attractive and healthy places for people and which also provide havens for wildlife. He has presented to a variety of audiences on biodiversity-related subjects across the UK and Europe, and he's currently involved in innovation around biodiversity monitoring, measurement and automation, as well as rewilding, blockchain and landscape-scale habitat restoration. His other company, Credit Nature, focuses on mobilising high-impact nature-positive investments by offering a suite of green fintech products and services that have been developed using cutting-edge technologies and techniques. If you're interested in rewilding and how we can make a meaningful long-term impact in the world, this conversation is for you. Kane, it's a pleasure to be in conversation with you today. How are you? Thanks, Natalie. Yeah, I'm really well and um, enjoying the opportunity to, to have a chat with you on the Hive podcast. Thank you for the cheeky plug. I love that. Um, so we're going to start with the big question, one of the big questions, because there are several, which is what do you think is going on in the global human psyche right now, if we can use that frame? Wow, that really is a big question. And um, I'd imagine there's there's quite a lot of contrast, really, in how people are feeling. I think we're obviously being um, barraged with a, a, a range of challenges from, you know, wars, climate change, biodiversity loss. But at the same time, I think people can see that there are ways through that actually are viable. And so whilst we're having to deal with a lot of challenges and there are some people who are suffering horrendously and, and tragically, there are, there are some areas of hope that I think people are starting to to hone in on in order to give us a, a way forward and, and get out of uh, perhaps some of the, the dangers that we're in. Hmm. And one of the things that I really love about your work is that you take a very science-based but also kind of culturally embedded approach to what we can actually do. 
And so I'd like to start by asking you about your wonderful book, Rewilding, that you co-authored with conservation scientist and practitioner Paul Japson. What moved you to write it? Well, um, Paul and I had been having conversations for quite some time, really. And in fact, we met at rewilding conferences, one that was held at NEP, uh, the estate that's quite famous for rewilding in in the UK. Uh, Franz Vera was there doing some talks. And Franz Vera is one of the the pioneers who introduced some of the concepts uh, relating to European rewilding, which sort of focuses in on large herbivores as being major Um, ecosystem engineers that benefit our our, uh, environment. So Paul and I were chatting away. Actually, I pulled him to one side and um, started talking to him about blockchain, not not (laughs) rewilding. But um, in fact, the the conversation evolved from there. And I met up with him. I I got involved in some workshops with his students because he was uh, the, the lead for a master's course at Oxford University. And we started to think about how can we really um, amplify the message about rewilding in different forms. Um, Then actually, I I invited Paul to join our our company. And he, you know, fantastically accepted. And following on from that, he had the opportunity to write the book. Um, He's, you know, he's one of the UK's leading rewilding scientists. And I found the the opportunity invited me in to to join in writing that book and, you know, couldn't be quick enough to accept the offer. <laughs> and so he helped guide the the sort of design of the book towards this this vision of how rewilding as a as a scientific discipline actually starts to reframe quite a lot of how environmentalists and biodiversity specialists have been thinking for quite some time. So mm. it was a real pleasure and honour to sort of join in writing the book with him in, a, in actual fact. And I think one of the things that's interesting when you start to dig into this stuff is that rewilding and ecosystem restoration and regeneration is actually quite different to what some might consider its predecessor, conservation. What are the key differences for you? I think one of the the driving differences and a quite, quite a stark difference really is that much of the conservation that's been put in place since the 1970s has been taken from the, the perspective of preventing harm and uh, protecting environments and species and protecting habitats from the the negative impacts of humanity. And, and quite rightly so on many levels, because so much damage has been done by humans over not just the last few decades, but millennia. And so this protectionist regime has um, in- encapsulated certain areas of our world to try and protect them against the engineering and industrialization of humanity, the ordering, the domestication of the world that we're so well known for. Mm. But ultimately, what we find with rewilding is it's more of a focus of how we can encourage nature to recover and also giving nature the space it needs to recover, um, having the faith that it's actually capable of recovering itself. So there are multiple kind of differences, really, but some of the fundamentals is is moving from a protectionist regime to one that's more focused on on nature recovery. I'd love to ask, given the work that you do with ecosystem restoration, how do you conceive of integration? When it comes to ecological restoration, um, integration can mean several things, really. Uh, it can range from the integration of and the uh, interconnectedness of the food web, for example, how different species are interconnected 
and the relationships that are really important between species populations and the, the ecosystems that support them. Another way of thinking about it as well is the need and the integration of lots of different disciplines within the, the sciences associated with ecological restoration. Typically, you get the best outcomes when you integrate thinking from a wide range of audiences, whether it's uh, indigenous cultures, scientific expertise, finance, geology, ecology, etc. So the more integrated the thinking is and more holistic the approach is, the better the outcomes are typically had. And, and it's also quite helpful to think about the, the overall system and how integrated um, land and freshwater and even the oceans are. For instance, uh, at the moment, it's known that something like 75% of coastal marine um, projects fail. And the main reason for that is that the land-based activities that are occurring around those coastal sites are actually uh, creating things like runoff, nutrient enrichment, et cetera, et cetera. So if you don't take an integrated approach in terms of your thinking about what other inputs might affect those marine ecosystems, then you're much less likely to have a successful outcome. So integrating thinking across those different uh, terrestrial, freshwater and marine ecosystems is absolutely fundamental. Mm. And so digging into the book a bit, what are some of the key themes that were the most salient that people should know about? I mean, obviously, people should read the book, but if you're going to take out the main insights that are really important for us to grapple with now, what would they be? One of the the really key insights um, is that within the, the book, we take the readers through the history of um, large herbivores and uh, demonstrate that large herbivores actually have an outsized influence over the the recovery of ecosystems Mm. Uh, this is because they they affect ecosystems in a a myriad of different ways but particularly in terms of affecting things like trophic complexity so the food web the the web of life how how through their behaviors they create disturbances and contribute to landscapes that changes those landscapes for the good it creates what we call heterogeneity And that gives lots of variation and variety within that environment. Also, as large herbivores and different guilds of herbivores interact, that creates spaces for quite a high level of biodiversity. So that's certainly one of the key principles that we kind of explain in the book. Another one's where actually humans are such a fundamental contributor to our ecosystems. And, you know, only a moment ago, I explained how humans are ordering and domesticating and damaging the planet. But actually, at the same time, it's completely feasible. And there are many examples of where humanity can be ecosystem engineers for good. Mm. And so as an umbrella ecosystem engineer, we can actually start to think of ourselves as, as a force for good that can actually help recover the world around us, interacting with nature in a really positive way, recognizing where we have strengths and where nature um, should be allowed to lead. And so those those sorts of principles have been drawn out uh, within the book. I think another really important message and one that Paul and I try quite hard to emphasise in, in most of our communications actually is that whilst we are at quite a low ebb at the moment and there's lots of evidence to, to say we are, there are ways in which actually we can recover our world relatively quickly and successfully and and that's 
something to hang on to, you know, to give society hope and purpose that really directs them towards thinking in ways that perhaps we haven't previously um, embraced. And, uh, you know, now now is the time really to embrace that as we, you know, come through COP27 and we're heading towards COP15, this idea that nature-based climate solutions are actually the way forward. Um, rewilding really offers the way to do that. And, and part of the reason is because it's a, it's a complete system of thinking, not just a particular focus on a, a single habitat or a species, for example. Hmm. I think therein lies part of the challenge is that because it is a complete system of thinking and our current system is so different to what your vision <laughs> proposes um, and what the science supports, I think one of the key issues is, you know, how do you how do you create a desire and a longing for change among people who are able to take steps in that direction at the scale and speed that we need in order for the system to really rapidly transform? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I suppose we've got to start at basic principles, really. And um, that's, that does come back to some of the things I've, I've highlighted, which is people are key, so we're not separating mm. people from nature. So when we're having discussions about food security, when we're talking about water quality, air quality, um, when we're thinking about GDP, when we're thinking about what goods and materials people have in their lives. All of those things depend on on a flourishing nature. So as a fundamental starting point, if we recognise and share our knowledge about why nature is so important to all of us all of the time, then then that's always a good premise. And, and that we're not trying to separate people from nature. Often there's there's a concern expressed, particularly around agriculture, for example, that rewilding and agriculture are, are, are at odds but absolutely they're not you know good soil health is fundamental to both agriculture and rewilding uh, introducing livestock and having guilds of livestock is really important to uh, ag- agriculture and and rewilding so so that's a, a key starting point I think to to move in this direction I think the next key area is where we start to think about demonstration projects. So people like something to get their teeth into. And there are some great examples now around the world of rewilding projects that have gone through different stages of evolution. Some have had Mm. some serious challenges at the beginning, but have overcome them through ingenuity and collaboration. Others have been a great success from, from the outset and have learned from some of the successes and failures of the past. But nonetheless, the number and type of demonstration projects are now growing globally. And so by directing people's attention to these these success stories, then you can start to imagine how that might be applied in, in, in various forms. There's another, I think, key ingredient here is actually many of the solutions that we talk about in terms of rewilding are actually um, quite simple. Hmm. I wouldn't say they're easy. Often things like political agenda, availability of finance, etc, etc, are quite challenging in terms of delivery of, of these solutions. But actually, the principles are quite simple. And if you stick to the, the principles, and you keep encouraging others to follow those principles, then that makes it a really viable and demonstrable way to um, help nature recover. 
So I think, you know, within those sort of three facets, and there are probably others, that that's how I would, you know, kickstart the thinking and the, the action that's um, possible. And I think one of the other things that you highlight in the work that you do is the connection. Obviously, you've mentioned about this already between people and nature and that we are enmeshed because that's where we come from. But also the connection between our sense of meaning and purpose and a richer web of life to which to belong. Because obviously the majority of folks in Europe now live in cities. So it's often quite difficult to feel like we are a part of this richer web of life. So I wonder what what your thoughts are around ways in which we can regain purpose, ways in which we can reconnect when so many of us are feeling this sense of estrangement from from the natural world. Yeah, I think um I think it's something like 60% of the global population is going to be living in in the urban areas by 2050 or some, something like that. And um so that's a really stark figure mm-hmm. and there's potential as you say to be completely separated from nature. Some people have never seen domestic animals for example like cattle in the wild and wow. uh, it's always quite shocking when you realize quite how separated some some are but at the same time i think you know many cities many towns are recognizing this and they're going to some you know quite in, ingenious lengths to bring nature back into the cities there's some good examples in singapore nottingham um and in in countries across the us uh, in cities across the us as well and uh, i think that's that's a starting point is actually starting to bring nature back into the city so you can recover riverways you can start to integrate green roofing features start to reduce the heat island effect with vegetation so it's it's a a lower scale of rewilding but it's still trying to um, restore processes that help cities function in a in a more naturalistic way Mm -hmm. i think on another level um trying to provide the right type of education and the right kind of support for people in the cities and in urban areas so that they they don't lose that that thread and they recognize where the the value of nature comes from so i think what we're trying to do when we're developing rewilding projects in in lots of different areas is is first and foremost thinking about the the local communities that are present in those areas we're looking very closely and very sensitive, sensitively at uh, rights holders and stakeholders who fundamentally already understand how the, the land behaves and how it flourishes and how nature interacts in those areas. So we're, we're looking at ways to recover nature that benefits the local community. And in benefiting them, they're able to generate their own local sense of pride, but but often more than that, they're actually able to generate new forms of nature-based enterprise. And what we're seeing actually in in some areas, certainly across Europe, is that this is starting to reduce the amount of uh, abandonment in some of the towns and villages. Hmm. Um, and that they're the, the people that had previously gone into the cities, often many of the younger generation, are now actually starting to return to those rural areas because actually they do have a sense of pride and they really do want to see their local towns and villages flourish. They just didn't really have the forms of the ways to make money that they they now have. I was recently in Argentina and it was a, a real eye-opener to me actually for a project, that a rewilding project that had been running for 
over 20 years, oh, wow. uh, the Tompkins Conservation had set up this rewilding program and where they had encouraged inclusion of the local community so so much, they've actually turned the whole thing around from a position where I think there were only something like 15 families left in the local town to a number now which is in the thousands of people oh, wow. <laughs> having jobs that are actually dedicated to nature-based enterprise. And so they've got now 10 gateways around the Ibera wetlands where people are coming in from all walks of life, many from domestic um, towns and cities in Argentina, to to see the great work that's been undertaken by Rewilding Argentina and others in that area. Mm. And it's a really um, empowering story when you're sitting, listening to the stories and hearing the music and the songs. And um, it's really touching to to see what what recovery for not just the the nature in that area, but for the human populations that are there. That really demonstrates firsthand what what hope actually means. Mm. That's beautiful. It's um it's amazing, isn't it, what some people are able to achieve when when the will is there. Not far from where I live in Barcelona, there's this old market that got stripped back to its iron frame. It's a very beautiful frame. If you imagine like a Victorian train station, it's kind of got those sorts of arches, but on a smaller scale. And the ground beneath it, um, as much as they keep trying to clear it, keeps cropping back up with all of these plants Mm. uh, because they're just waiting to build it. And there's been so many interventions around that site on the fences, people putting plants in pots, school kids coming and putting posters, placards asking to rewild this area. And it's been such a struggle, even though it's a tiny little footprint relatively. And we still don't know what's going to happen if they're going to come back and build yet another market or if they're going to green the space or do something in between. Mm. But it's it's one of these things that if it were to be realised in its vision as a flourishing garden in the middle of what's a very sort of urbanised, built-up area and quite polluted area, yes. um, it would do huge amounts for the morale. And yet it's a kind of, I don't know, I have this sort of sense of sinking feeling <laughs> yeah, <laughs> when I go yeah. past it thinking it's only a matter of time. And so I think these these examples and these stories that you share where people are actually managing to create whole other ways of relating to each other and to their place with the world and to looking after it and even sort of, you know, systems of economy. It's it's really it's really necessary because you need to have the vision to be able to dream differently. Yes, and I think, um, you know, the vision was lacking for many in the, the sort of 70s, 80s and 90s and this this protectionist regime that I was talking about before doesn't necessarily enable people to take ownership over those solutions that that you're describing. And I think now there is more recognition that everyone can play their part. Um, Rewilding is relevant in the urban context as well as in vast tracts of wetland like the Ibera wetlands or the Amazon rainforest. And it's very much about how communities of action and and what we're seeing actually is that there's now an emerging social movement, I think, behind rewilding that's starting mm. to coalesce with a whole range of factors, including institutional validation with organisations saying and, and providing policies about what, what they're doing to uh, improve on rewilding strategies. There are local communities that are backing rewilding projects and raising money for rewilding projects. There are scientific establishments that 
are validating and proving the science around rewilding. Governments are even starting to to support it. And we're seeing a, a, a network of businesses, charities, uh, scientific institutions, all coalescing and bringing together their combined knowledge with the, the shared objective of actually realising that vision, I think, that, that rewilding really offers. Mm. And so let's, let's talk a bit about the two organisations that you run. First of all, Ecosilis, a nature-based rewilding and restorations solutions organisation, which is doing extraordinary work, which is also a B Corp, I just realised. So um, It is, yeah. That's very exciting. And then Credit Nature. Both of these provide their own pathway towards the regeneration of nature. So I'd like to ask you about each of them. But first, just on a personal level, I'm curious to ask you about the name Ecosulis. What does it represent? Thank you. Yeah. So Ecosulis was a name actually the, the staff voted for. We put, a, put it to the vote back in the 90s, can't remember exactly when, 94 perhaps, about what type of company name did we want. And um, we were a bath-based business at the time in the UK and Aquasulis is the goddess of bath. So hmm. one of the team members there came up with the suggestion of Ecosulis um, and everyone voted for it and said that was mm. that was the one that stuck. So, yeah, we were really pleased to have um, come up with that name. It's quite distinctive, I think. Yeah, it really is. So in terms of what it does, I was intrigued to read about some of the kind of innovations that you're developing to, for instance, tokenize biodiversity and bring ecological surveys into our kind of more technological era. Can you explain what tokenizing biodiversity involves and how it works and why it's important? Yes, yeah, sure. So, I mean, Ecosulis, um, just as a bit of history, is a, a company that's been delivering nature-based solutions for over 30 years now. So we've got quite an applied skill set. Our team are out there restoring rivers, we're planting trees, we're uh, creating wildflower meadows, reintroducing species, all of those sorts of things. So we've got quite an applied practical um, skill set. We've also, over the years, been in interested in the sort of science of technology and methodology. So we've worked with Dr. Alan Feast, who's a, a senior research fellow since 2014. And he's been working with us to develop metrics of different kinds for measuring biodiversity quality. When uh, Dr. Paul Jepson joined us, we started to look at the different methodologies that we'd been using in different contexts mm. and say, well, what is it that is needed in order to accelerate rewilding on a, on a massive scale? And what mechanisms could, could make that happen? Um, and so we, we had to think quite long and hard about the scale, the cost of scaling, the um, funding of these different methods of recovering nature and how we channel that funding in a transparent and fair way. So we came up with the idea that actually the, the, the technologies that are currently available, such as blockchain and tokens that can sit on that blockchain, they offer a lot of utility that allow them to be designed in a way that they can be connected to data that measures the the health of an ecosystem. So we've de we've developed a methodology called a natural asset recovery investment analytics framework, and within that we actually can 
baseline what ecosystems, what state ecosystems are in and the health of the different dimensions of an ecosystem. We can then, through running different scenarios based on our land management expertise, we can then start to predict what the uplift in those different metrics would be. And then we can connect those metrics to a um, nature impact token that then uh, provides a financial mechanism for investing in the nature recovery mm. projects that that those baselines are related to. So it's really very comprehensive and um, com- well, I'd say <laughs> the closest to complete that I've heard in terms of uh, something which is made simple for the investor, let's say, or the business or the organisation to understand while actually having meaningful impact uh, where it's needed. Yes, absolutely. I think you know, as as a business that's been delivering nature-based solutions for a long time, mm-hmm. our focus had to be on well, what what do the what do the investors need? You know, we need to we know that we can uphold our side of the bargain, but what do we need to provide to the investors so that they can actually provide the money and the funding to make that nature recovery happen? Mm-hmm. And when we started looking around, actually, it, it seems and still is a problem that many are trying to solve, but Often there's quite a big gap between the the capital markets or the fund managers um, or the investor um, thesis so that actually the money can't be unlocked. So that was one of the bigger problems. The token really offers a a very um, clear, neat, transparent, transactional mechanism to make that happen. We, We are aware of some of the um, I suppose negative associations with blockchain and sustainability and things like that. So we've we've looked at that in quite a lot of detail and found the you know the most sustainable blockchain, for example, mm-hmm. to host those tokens on. But at the same time, what we're what we're starting to see is actually the the whole systems approach is also still quite important. So the scientific rigor behind our NARIA framework is really important to those investors. The type of information that's presented on a platform that's meaningful for decision making is important to investors and third party verifiers and things like that. Mm. So it was really necessary to offer the complete solution, um, which is why we've developed that. And then we've launched that as Credit Nature, which is the company that hosts um, the Naria framework and the and the token. Great, because I was just about to ask you about Credit Nature. So tell us a little bit more about how that works. And if there are people who are in business, business leaders, or people who are looking for these sorts of ways to use their money in a positive way, what do they need to know about it? How can people use it? How does it work? Well, I think many people are familiar with the carbon credits, the the voluntary carbon schemes and things like that. There's been a lot of controversy over that but equally there are projects now that have evolved and are maturing to providing high integrity carbon credits that's fine on one level but carbon credits are relatively simple when compared to biodiversity because all you're really thinking about is one unit of Mm. carbon a ton of carbon for example whereas within ecosystems and biodiversity we're looking at quite a lot of complexity so Credit Nature provides the the mechanism via our NARIA framework to um, consolidate that complexity into a set of metrics that are understandable to the scientific community. Mm -hmm. We try to to present this in a way of thinking about a jigsaw. So our metrics, when they come together, 
whilst we haven't got all of the pieces of the jigsaw, they're, they're connected enough and the interactions are understood so well that actually you can still tell what the picture is and what the direction of change is for, for that particular site or project. Um, that's in contrast to the methods that are quite often used, which is analogous to what they say is a, a basket of metrics, which is um, perhaps if you go around a shop and you just randomly pick things off the shelf. So that's a really important distinction that by setting those sorts of baselines for uh, corporates who are interested in investing in nature positive investment, mm. and uh, I emphasize that rather than just offsetting. So this is this is um, specifically developed for nature positive investors who recognize that in the future, their GDP, the survival of their businesses, um, local communities will demand the recovery of nature and the investment of the recovery in nature in order to, to perpetuate their business model. So when we're thinking about these sorts of interventions and what it takes to kind of make the mindset shift, do you find that people are more open to these ideas that they're more accepting of or have a greater appetite for taking a different path forward? Do you think that's something which you're seeing like a greater desire for right now or is it still pretty challenging to get people to see the value of it? Uh, I think it's still quite challenging. There are, there's certainly a movement in the direction towards nature positive investment. I think many, many businesses and many corporations are still very much focused on net zero, offsetting carbon, those sorts of things. The, the slightly more discerning are looking at offsetting biodiversity impacts as well. Uh, so that they're mitigating the effect of their businesses on biodiversity. It's quite a small percentage and and typically actually some of the larger businesses that are thinking along the lines of nature positive investment. And that's obviously a challenge on one level, but it's an opportunity as well, I think. So whilst the whole world's not singing about it, perhaps, I think once once some of these larger organisations are given the means to demonstrate that they're investing in a way that can demonstrate integrity in that investment, mm. then I think others will follow quite quickly. So this is why really we've we've created this mechanism, which we're we understand to be the the optimal solution based on the best available techniques and cost and all these sorts of things at the moment to say, have a look over here. You know, we we've created something that does make this possible. There's high integrity, high, high scientific rigour. It's cost effective. We can demonstrate and forecast how nature's going to recover and we can help you manage the process along the way. So I think there'll only need to be one or two pioneering investors, I think, to really start to kickstart that, that um, area of investment over and above perhaps just, just offsetting carbon, for example. Mm. And so when people are thinking about their impact on the environment and how to better understand what needs to change, one of the things that you talk about is the difference between and the connection between biodiversity versus ecosystem recovery and how monitoring these things require different approaches. Can you talk us through that a little bit? Yes, I mean, in simple or the simplest terms I can think of, biodiversity is an emergent property of healthy functioning ecosystems. So if we're measuring and monitoring species and habitats, often that's the outcome of whether an ecosystem has 
good flows of water, good air quality, um, diverse vegetation structures, movement of large mammals through the ecosystem, things like that. These these functional effects and impacts, uh, what they call sort of biotic and abiotic influences on an ecosystem, that's what determines what type of biodiversity can live there. Um, and then there are things like connectivity in the landscape, levels of disturbance, and as I mentioned earlier, the, the, the complexity of food webs, for example. With biodiversity, it's it's almost a lag indicator. It's it's what the ecosystem is telling you after the combination of all those things are taken into account. So we're very clear that by focusing on the ecosystem itself and, and helping to restore the processes and the functions within that ecosystem, then biodiversity will emerge from that, assuming that those other parameters are all, all true, that there is connection, that there is there's, there are good levels of, of disturbance, for example. So looking at rewilding from a different angle now, from kind of the, the human psychological interconnected angle, one of the things that gets raised quite a lot is the increase in what people describe as eco-anxiety. Is that something that figures in the work that you do or maybe in your personal life when you're doing this work? Yes, absolutely. Um, I've been involved in nature conservation for over 30 years now and I have had periods where I've really suffered from eco-anxiety and felt the doom and, and gloom really and and uh, wasn't really sure where to, to go with it. And I think mm. for me there were times and still actually I can't watch <laughs> I can't watch certain nature programs because I I know what they're going to end up saying you know the frozen planet 2 for example I'd love to watch it but it will really lower my mood and make me feel quite anxious about what I'm doing and I know I know what's at stake so it's not like I'm ignorant to what's going on I really do I agree that we need to make things better and improve things and I've committed my entire existence to, to that happening so for me I I avoid listening to and reading things that are negative about our, our planet and I really major on presenting solutions that are positive and examples of things that do work and ways of working that do make things better and do include people um, and to be honest that's why I really found the whole introduction into rewilding to be the inspiration I needed back in 2013. I listened to a talk by George Monbiot, who's mm. divisive for some, but I found him to be a, a complete inspiration in the sense of really clearly articulating what could be done and what we needed to do as a society to make that a reality. So I discovered rewilding and found my hope and purpose. And that's why I kind of present it to people with enthusiasm as much as I can, because it really is uh, a solution that can benefit all really. So yeah, I do I do still suffer from eco-anxiety. Strangely, I, I had it when I came back from Argentina. I'd spent 12 days in a beautiful setting, surrounded by lots of wild nature, seeing animals everywhere, hearing great stories of success about reintroduction of animals, recovery of local people in the town of Corrientes, all of these sorts of things. When I came back, I, you know, I, I love the UK, but it it seemed very nature depleted to me. And um, that was a bit depressing. So it took me, <laughs> probably took me another week or so to um, 
dust myself off and uh, realize that actually we've we've still got lots of good things we can do in this country despite its its low ebb of nature. It's tricky, isn't it? I think that's one of the things that when you're doing this kind of work, you're going to encounter almost more viscerally because of the kind of going to places where things are going well and then going back to to live in a context where there's so much more that can be done. Um, and you've written you've written that you believe that it's within our grasp to be the first generation in history to leave nature in a better state than we found it and to witness wildlife rebounding and leave healthy, functioning, natural areas for future generations. What gives you cause for hope in this moment at such a precarious time, you know, alongside these extraordinary individual projects like the one that you described in Argentina? Are there other green shoots that you turn to and that give you inspiration? I think so. I think um, just witnessing the, the the movement behind, you know, addressing some of the biggest issues on the planet. You know, we often it's referred back to the idea that if we can address a pandemic like the COVID nineteen in such a short space of time, then hmm. humanity really does have it within its grasp and capacity to overcome some of you know globally impacting and tragic um, incidents and, and catastrophic incidents. So I think we we know we can actually mobilise collectively to make things better. I think that's that's encouraging and we do see a growing movement associated with climate adaptation, mitigation, um, and trying to mitigate the effects of climate change. I think that does give hope. I know there are lots of challenges there as well. I think once there is a, a critical mass in support of these different areas of environmental and green protection and moving towards some of these models around um, understanding that marine protection areas, for example, if you if you protect a large enough area and you allow those large um, marine fauna, such as sharks and whales, to recover, then the rest of the ecosystem quickly regenerates over quite a short time frame. So I think as as the world starts to awaken to this idea that these collective activities are actually do have a difference and do make a difference, and actually we do need we need to take action, and the longer we leave it, the harder it will get. I, I feel like that is 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 the environment in which humanity actually does flourish the best. <laughs> Sad to say, sometimes once our backs are against the wall, we actually do some of our best work. But um, yeah. <laughs> Hopefully I'm not too deluded on on that front. But. I know. No, no, no. I often have that same thought. And so thinking about what people can do individually or in small groups or with their friends, um, what are some of the things, are there some things that you think are good places for people to start in terms of how they can get engaged in this in this wider struggle or this wider effort? Yes, I think so. I mean, you know, reading up on the subject is always... Uh, a good start, as I mentioned, although there are lots of scientific terms and, um, you know, lots of experts around the country and the world, I think actually, as I mentioned before, many of the concepts and ideas around rewilding are actually quite simple. Um, it doesn't require complex understanding of um, how systems work in order to start rewilding. I think so so that education and, and sharing your knowledge as well is quite important. I go and do talks in schools. I will talk to parish councils. Um, I'll go out on group days. And 
there are there are other people in there who aren't you know whose job isn't to be a rewilder who are also contributing to those discussions and sharing their knowledge so you know sharing knowledge and joining in groups that are focused on these sorts of things is is a really great way to start you know we can't all be um uh, on our laptops <laughs> trying to to save the world we have to get out there sometimes mm. um i think another way is recognize that the collective effort such as people allowing you know nature in their gardens and talking to their neighbors about letting nature in their gardens or talking to their parish council or their local churches these things over time do actually aggregate and mm. provide networks of um, habitat that's beneficial to a range of species clearly you can't start to re- reintroduce large herbivores <laughs> in your gardens unless you've got a huge estate but um even still, you know, pollinators and insects and birds still need those spaces to to enjoy. Mm-hmm. I think on another level, there are ways that you can contribute through funding organisations. I know that Rewilding Britain and Hill Rewilding, Rewilding Europe, um, Highlands Rewilding, there are, there are a range of organisations now that are starting to provide ways for communities to invest even at just a small amount, maybe £50 or or whatever, that then goes directly towards recovery of nature. So you can contribute that way. Brilliant. And so thinking about the future, I know that you are in the process of writing two books, exploring the journey of where we are to where we need to be and some of the fears that, that might come up around that, some of the things around communities and policies and lifestyles that might need to change. Can you tell us a little bit about these two books? I know we're a bit ahead of kind of schedule in discussing them, but they are very exciting. Yeah, so the first one's called The Fear Paradox, Learning to Thrive in a Wilder World. And the emphasis of this book is recognising that when we, when we project to a world where nature's recovering we will have an environment where large herbivores will be in in bigger herds, we'll have more of them, and we'll also have predators that, that um, you know, hunt them for food. And that world to an individual or a community can be quite scary, can actually be quite damaging at times. And so there's understandably some fears around the recovery of some of these big animals, particularly carnivores such as wolves and tigers and and so on. Mm. But it's such an important part of the recovery of our natural world that we do let nature recover, including these these animals. So the book explores the the paradox between our individual fears of these animals against the backdrop of our collective fear, our existential fear of the impacts of things like climate change, the loss of biodiversity, food insecurity, water shortages, et cetera, et cetera. So it's taking the the reader on a on a journey and a and a, a realization that actually we have to start to embrace our individual fears sometimes because actually the risk is quite low, although those things can and do happen, the risk of a confrontation with a wild animal is quite low. And there are ways of avoiding it, there are ways of mitigating it. And so actually the the bigger fear that we we should recognise and do something about are these these larger existential fears that um, I mentioned. So it's looking at the history of fear through the timeline of humanity, 
all the way through to projecting a future where we've learned to re-engage with nature in a way that benefits us and protects our communities at the same time as allowing nature to flourish for, for our own good. Mm. And the second book, Keeping 1.5 Alive. So the second book uh, I'm co-authoring with Daniel Allen, who's um, a specialist in rewilding writing. And we came up with the idea when we were actually in Argentina together, and we felt like there's some really strong science now and there's been lots published recently about the importance of rewilding as a as a nature-based climate solution and it when we start to look at examples like the return of beavers even in the in the UK and across the US how beavers have actually created zones of aquatic wetlands that were really tolerant to the recent droughts. Mm. In the US uh, recently, a paper came out that demonstrated that these areas are, are not only resistant and resilient to drought, actually, as, the, as climate change impacts are likely to increase, the range of beaver habitat is also likely to increase because they create more wetlands as a, as a compensatory measure. Mm. Uh, the, the book looks at things like uh, ecosystems such as mangroves and salt marsh and kelp that actually are known to be really high sequesters of carbon and that they lock carbon particularly mangroves for example into the into the root systems and some of the older salt marsh um, vegetation types also lock up carbon for a long time as do species like large whales the great whales elephants and other large mammals, they're all sequesters. They all hold and lock carbon into their, their body mass. There are then um, great examples of how returning herbid, herbivores across vast areas, how they create a mosaic and natural fire breaks and things like that that can help reduce the impacts of um, fire. So we wanted to be able to capture all of these different ways in which nature when it's allowed to rewild, actually provides a, a really powerful nature, nature-based climate solution. Mm. That sounds like a much more rich and beautiful and exciting world to live in. Yeah, I would hope so. It's certainly, you know, that's that is actually the the outcome that we're all hoping for, isn't it? Is to have a better world to live in. And again, it is within our grasp, I think, if we can guide society towards that. Um, that type of world and that type of acceptance of allowing nature to perhaps roam a bit more freely. And so you mentioned, or well, we touched on it briefly, eco-anxiety. And um, one of the things that I'd like to ask you, as I've been asking all my guests, is how you orient yourself towards hope when things get tough and if there are any tools or practices that you found invaluable. Yeah, good question. I think there are multiple tools, actually. And um, the first as uh, cliched as it sounds based on the uh, the interview that we're having, is to spend time in nature because uh, <laughs> n nature has many healing ways and even just a walk in nature is uplifting, it's calming, um, it's grounding. And I think, you know, if you open yourself up to nature in different ways, just sit and listen to smell, to observe, then it's really restorative in terms of spending time in nature. Um, and actually, the, the, you know, beyond that, there is science that evidences that people's health, well-being are really positively impacted by being in nature, which is why there are things like green prescriptions and 
retreats and things like that being developed to to kind of help people deal with the stresses of life. Um, another method, I, I meditate a reasonable amount and um, probably not as much as I used to actually, but I've learned techniques of mindfulness that really do help ground me when things are getting on top of me and finding ways to reconnect with my my breath and feel grounded and these days I can I can do that in a relatively short space of time it used to take me you know a good half an hour of um mindfulness meditation whereas now I can generally reintroduce breathing quite quite quickly to to help calm my mind mm. It's tricky. I often notice when I'm doing things that I'm <laughs> finding stressful that I hold my breath and it takes a real concerted effort to kind of stop <laughs> and actually breathe again. Yes. Yeah, I, might, I, I do do that as well, to be fair. So um, <laughs> it's normally after I've realised that's happening that um, I start to re-engage with, uh, with good breathing breathing practice. I've heard people talk about it as email apnea, you know, the sense of just the, the, the stopping of breathing that comes when we're on our laptops and checking our inboxes. Oh, right, so yeah. So it's, it's a thing. Um, and so finally, if you're going to give people listening a question that you'd like them to dwell with, what might that be? I think the question I'd ask is, are people ready to really make the decisions that are right in front of them and, and available to them to create a future that's hopeful, productive, um, healthy and beneficial? Because that will require some sacrifice. And we are seeing still that people say they want things to change, but aren't actually willing to be the instigators of change themselves. So the question is, are are they ready to be part of the change? And if so, what are they going to do about it? Because um, it, it's all there, all there to be done. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for this very rich and interesting conversation. If people want to learn more about your work, where are the best places to find you? Uh, I spend most of my time publicly on LinkedIn. So um, by all means, follow me on LinkedIn. And uh, I like to have a a good chat with people on various posts that I post about rewilding and other topics. So that's probably the best place to, to find me. Um, and if you're interested in finding more about Ecosulis and Credit Nature, then uh, they're both searchable on Google. Lovely. Kane. it's been a real pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Natalie. Yeah, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalie Nahai. If you enjoyed the show, please do give it a rating and a review as it helps to reach new ears. For more information, you can visit natalienahai.com forward slash The Hive Podcast. You can also reach out to me on Twitter and LinkedIn at Natalie Nahai. My thanks to Caro C for producing. Thank you for listening. And I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode.